Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 200, increment 200. And in this increment, I'm going to bring you something that I think will be extraordinary for some. And the written notes will prove exceptionally important for this one and perhaps even necessary. But it's called an exercise in Thomist method. I spent a couple of years, I think, a little bit at a time, reading his Summa Theologica in five volumes. And it proved immensely important, not just from the doctrinal content, and I didn't agree with all the doctrinal content of it, but the method that Thomas employed to get to the truth is a remarkable one. And I want to give you an exercise in Thomas method. I've used this in many areas of my life since then, this method. So to me, it was even more important, even though there were some remarkable gems of doctrine and Christology and theology that I found in that marvelous writing and gleaned from it. I think the method that he deployed proved more valuable to me, learning that method. So I'm going to teach you a little bit about the method of Thomas Aquinas, which we'll call an exercise in Thomist method. Thomist simply takes Thomas, turns it into an adjective, Thomist method. We'll be going to Hebrews 7.25 perhaps, but this is what we call another Hebrews in toto message. This kind of envelops the whole of Hebrews, or at least proves applicable to all of Hebrews. Hebrews in toto. We did this in Rev the Book. We did Rev the Book in toto. Lots of messages that simply applied to the whole book at once. And this is one of them for Hebrews. Hebrews in toto, the Latin phrase in toto meaning in its totality. So, Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to explore a method that's fruitful in getting to the truth. In this case, the truth that's embodied in Jesus. And we pray that this will prove beneficial and that it will yield lasting fruit in all who listen and all who hear and all who read this message. For we ask it in Christ's name. And with asking it in Christ's name, we ask it with confidence and assurance of its answer. Amen. Following, then, is an exercise in the method deployed by Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica. Thomas asked questions about the priesthood of Christ, in fact, specifically. In part three, question 22, in six articles, and handed those questions on. He handled those questions with his usual method. And the method I'm going to just reduce to five parts of every method or every article, every question. Again, the question was about the priesthood of Christ, question three. Make that question 22 in part three of Summa Theologica. It's so confusing, all these things. But he did it in six articles. Each article had five parts to it. One, 
The question was presented. Two, objections were listed. In other words, very simply, whether Christ was a priest, question mark, objections. Christ couldn't have been a priest because of such and such. Objection two, Christ couldn't have been a priest because of such and such. Christ couldn't have been a priest because of such three, three objections. For, there's been as many, sometimes there's only as few as one or two objections in these articles. Sometimes there's up to up around 12, I think, is maybe one of the highest ones I've seen. So the third element of the article, there was a category called on the contrary. Now, for that, Thomas might say, well, you've objected three times, but on the contrary, the scripture says Jesus Christ is a priest forever. So that kind of slams the door on those. But then in the fourth, this is perhaps the most important, Thomas says, has a category called I answer that. And that's where the meat of the doctrine comes along with the fifth, in which he replies sequentially to the objections offered in category two. Those are the five elements. The question, objections lodged, the on the contrary statement, which is usually quite brief, the I answer that, in which he gives the case or expands the on on the contrary a little bit, And then fifth, he replies to each of the objections. So on one example, Thomas dealt with the question of whether the priesthood of Christ endures forever. That's in part three, question 22, article five. And of course, he answered this in the affirmative that Christ's priesthood endures forever. Thomas did not deal, however with the question whether Jesus' priesthood was universal. So it's a few hundred years after Thomas. Maybe it's time to ask that question now. Thomas handled very well whether his priesthood was eternal. But let's, on the level of our time, ask the question whether Jesus' priesthood is universal. That's what we'll do in this present increment. Increment 22 of our Hebrews 2020 series. Increment 200, I'll say that again, increment 200 of our Hebrews 2020 series. Our primary aim in this increment is to familiarize us with the Thomas method. Consequently, I'm not going to be presenting this subject with a great amount of doctrinal detail. It deserves to be presented with a lot of doctrinal detail, but I'm merely trying to teach the method, and that teaching also is so that we may see Jesus with more clarity and with a 2020 spiritual vision. That's the aim of the whole series anyways. The study also brings to the fore two theological functional specialties, doctrines and systematics, plural, systematics. By doctrines is meant, at least from my understanding, that from this question we can derive a doctrine called the doctrine of the universality 
of Jesus' priesthood. Systematics, on the other hand, as a theological functional specialty, refers to the specialty of making understandable a doctrine which we accept by faith. Our question, though having an application to Jesus' priesthood, will be with regard to his mediation. Now, that's another thing I'm going to be doing. Our question, even though it relates specifically to his priesthood, it relates more generally. And it will, in fact, in our Hebrew study, easily morph into his mediation. Mediation. We could even say that Jesus' priesthood is an important aspect of his mediation between God and humanity, the one true God and all of humanity. By answering the question whether Christ's mediation is universal, therefore, and that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask the question whether Christ's, or let's put it the way the Hebrew writer would put it, whether Jesus' mediation is universal. Because asking and answering that question, whether Jesus' mediation is universal, we will be simultaneously answering whether Jesus' priesthood is universal. Because if his mediation is universal, then the aspect of his mediation called priesthood is also universal. So again, this is going to be a basic outline. I'm not going to be doing an in-depth doctrine. You could fan this out almost perpetually into a volume of Christology. I'm only doing this, again, to familiarize you with the method. So we're only getting kind of basic outline in our answers, and I'm not attempting to flesh this out into an exorbitantly large doctrine. Here we go. Question. Whether Jesus' mediation is universal. Okay, first objection. Objection one. Christ's mediation is not universal, for the scripture says that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, this you have to be creative in giving the, the objections, too, because you have to assume, well, there has to be people that object, and how could they object? And this is one, I'm assuming, a person could make this objection. So you actually, in doing this kind of question, you actually have to be creative in creating the objection first. So the objection one, Christ's mediation is not universal, says the objector. For the scripture says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 and 12.24. Now, I'm speaking here for the objector, not as the objector. The new covenant, he goes on to say, is that which God promised to Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, not to all of humanity or to the universe for that matter. Objection two. This might be another objector or the same very brilliant single objector. Objection two. Christ's mediation is not universal for Jesus himself. Speaking of his blood of the new covenant said, quote, for this is my blood of the new covenant, 
which is shed for many, emphasis on many, for the remission of sins. He did not say shed for all, but for many, says the objector. Objection three. Christ's mediation is not universal. For when speaking of his everlasting priesthood in the Bible, it says explicitly that he makes intercession to save completely those who come to God through him. His priesthood, which is synonymous with his mediation, cannot be said to be universal because it says, quote, those who come to God through him, close quote. This tells us that his mediation is exclusive to those who come to God through him and not inclusive of all of humanity to say nothing of the whole universe. Now, there's the objections. And I've kind of anticipated what kind of objections could be made and put myself in the shoes of the objector. Just like Paul put himself in the shoes of someone who's trying to be justified by the law in Romans 7. He speaks, he gives that person a voice. Here's the on the contrary. It's usually in Thomas. It's good to get a copy of the Summa Theologica and just have it in your library if you have the wherewithal to get it. There's some used copies that are probably not too expensive. The on the contrary is usually pretty brief and succinct. Here's my on the contrary. Quote, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's my simple, concise, succinct, on the contrary statement. It's a quotation of 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. Here's my I answer that. This is where you have to take responsibility and be responsible. This is where you have to take responsibility for taking a stand and giving your answer and presenting your conviction. We all have to do this as preachers, as pastor teachers, and sometimes even as Christian witnesses. We have to get to a place where we come to our own conviction and then voice it. I answer that. And this is where it gets detailed. Somewhat. The answer, or the mediation rather, of the man Christ Jesus is universal as is the salvation that he effected in the days of his flesh and that he will bring when he appears the second time. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between the one God and humanity, humanity emphasized. By humanity must be meant all of humanity because by one God, the scripture writer means all of God. Mediation is part of the great salvation Hebrews 2.3, that was wrought by our Lord. He was sent to save the world, John 3.17. And his mission was successful. 
as the savior of the world, John 4, 42. And why would the Bible call him that if he weren't that? In 1 John 4, 14 also. He is the constant and forever mediator between God and all the world. As, quote, the lamb who took away the sin of the cosmos, which could be translated universe as well as all of humanity, Christ Jesus is the savior of the whole cosmos, including all of humanity, all of the angels, and all creatures great and small, to quote James Harriet. As well as the creation in toto, as is indicated in verses like Revelation 5.13, and as well as prophecies like Isaiah 55, 12 and 13, which the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts this way. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. It will make a name for the Lord as an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. This speaks of the restoration of all things in which there can never be another incursion of evil. And it also speaks of the redemption that Jesus Christ works and has completed being for all the universe. To go on in my category called I Answer That, I say this. All that was rectified and reconciled in the first advent of Jesus through the blood of his cross, Romans 5.9, 2 Corinthians 5.19, Colossians 1.20, will be redeemed when all people, like Job, see their Redeemer, Job 19.26. When the eyes of all see their King, who comes to save them, Isaiah 33.17-24. to in the same chapter on the scripture of the scripture where it speaks of Christ the son being not spared by God but handed over for the benefit of us all Romans 8:32 and where it speaks of the same Christ risen from the dead and interceding at the right hand of God it also speaks of the liberation of the creation which will be brought about when he comes and when the apocalypse of the sons of God in glory occurs. Romans 8.34, and then harking back to Romans 8.19-23, and then compared with Hebrews 9.28. Again, this is a bare bones, I answer that. The last paragraph I have for the category, I answer that, is this. In Isaiah 33.17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and you will see a vast land. And in Isaiah 33:20, to pick up another excerpt of that wonderful chapter, your eyes will see Jerusalem, meaning the new Jerusalem, a peaceful pasture, a tent that does not wander. Its tent pegs will not be pulled up, referring to the tent of our human body dying in 2 Corinthians 5.1 nor will any of its cords be loosened. And again in Isaiah 33, 21-22, For there the majestic one, Yahweh, 
will be for us, a place of rivers and broad streams where ships that are rowed will not go and majestic vessels will not pass. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. And one more time in 33:24 of Isaiah, and none there will say, I am sick. No one will ever say in that new Jerusalem, I am sick. That will be a repudiation of our times and a total slam dunk on the so-called COVID-19 plague. Then it goes on to say, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Now we have to go to replies to the objections. And with that, we move into the third and final, or the fifth rather, and final stage of an exercise in Thomas' method, asking the question whether Jesus' mediation is universal. Here we go. Reply to objection one. Christ is indeed the mediator of the new covenant, which benefits not only Israel and Judah, but all of humankind. For as the scripture says in Revelation 21.3, with reference to Jeremiah 31.33, God's home is with humankind. And they will be his people, and he their God. Christ Jesus is therefore the mediator of the new covenant, which savingly benefits all of humanity and all of creation. For it says humanity. God's home is with humanity and not just Israel and Judah. Moreover, this covenant is promised in connection with these words, which immediately follow in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. The one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar. The Lord of the armies is his name. And this strongly implies that this fixed universal order shall never depart from his presence. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, however, thus inferring that the new covenant mediated by Jesus is for, ultimately, it is for the benefit, the infinite benefit of all the created universe. <clears throat> Beside even this, the new covenant is ultimately inseparable from the new creation which God also promises in Isaiah in 65:17, The new creation is not of Israel or of Judah alone, but of all things in Revelation 21.5. As the man Christ Jesus is said to be the sole mediator, S-O-L-E, or only mediator, between the one God and humanity, so God is said to be the God of humanity. And humanity as one whole entity, is God's people. 
Reply to objection two. That Jesus' blood was shed for the remission of the sins of many is properly interpreted as the forgiveness of the sins of all. For in the scriptures where Jesus himself says, the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, the proper interpretation of many there is all. As is made clear in 1 Timothy 2, 6, which says Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus was arguably employing the rhetorical device of understatement when he said many. In a similar way, many who are made righteous through the obedience of one Jesus Christ, as it's said in Romans 5.19, is equivalent to all being given the justification of life through the one righteous act of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in Romans 5.18. There's reply to objection two. Reply to objection three. Those who come to God through him the priest forever means all of humanity. Those who come to God through him means all of humanity in reply to objection three above. First, and follow this logic, it's from the Johannine writings, from John's writings mostly. First, no one comes to the Son. Now, let's go back a little bit. First, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. No one comes to God, therefore, except through Jesus. John 14, 6. Second, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him or her. John 6.44 and 6.65. Third, all whom God the Father gives to the Son will come to him. And when they do, the Son will cast none of them out in John 6.37, but will raise them up on the last day in 6.39, 6.40, etc., Fourth, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all he has given him. In John 17, 2. He gives him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all the, that he's given him. God has given him all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he's given to him which is all flesh. No wonder the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Joel 2.28. Fifth, therefore, the Father has given all of humanity to the Son, and the Son gives eternal life to all of humanity. Sixth, the Son does only what he sees the Father do. 
John 5:19. Seventh, the Son draws all to himself. The Son drawing all to himself is only doing what the Father does, and the Father, therefore, must be said to draw all to the Son because the Son only does what the Father does. John 12:32 in connection with John 5:19. Eighth, therefore, the Father draws all to the Son and through the Son to the Father himself. Ninth, ergo, or therefore, Latin for therefore, ergo, Jesus the great archpriest intercedes for all of humanity to save them completely. Hebrews 7.25. Now, here's something to add to objection three, or reply to objection three. Very important distinction. There are, that there are superior benefits accorded to those who come to God through Jesus Christ in this life and who draw near to God through him in this life is an indisputable fact of the scripture because the Bible says clearly that God our Savior is the Savior of all of humanity, especially of those who are believing. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. 1 Timothy 4, 9, and 10. So it is the believing part of humankind who are said to draw near to God through Jesus, the mediator of all of humanity, and the great archpriest whose intercession benefits all of humanity and all of the universe which he unstoppably resolves to redeem, having already reconciled the world to himself. I think a basic premise that Karl Barth came up with is that the world is already reconciled to God, but has yet to be redeemed. And by redeemed, I would say the redemption of our bodies, which will occur when Christ returns and comes to save us in the final sense of our salvation. So in closing... And this might be a brief message, but I won't apologize for it because, again, it's an exercise in Thomist method that I wanted to make clear to you. But I also wanted to use it to show, at least in very basic fashion, that the, universal, that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is universally beneficial. And that way you'll see Jesus a little more clearly. So as was said at the outset, this increment was not intended to present an exhaustive case for the universal mediation of Jesus, but was merely meant to be an example of Thomist method. It would be interesting to do a whole book study in the New Testament employing only Thomist method on every verse or in every paragraph or something like that. It would be a fascinating study. So this was merely meant to be an example of Thomist method, the method consistently deployed by Thomas Aquinas in Summa Theologica with great effect. And I just hope that it proved beneficial. May it be so, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.